On today's episode of Two Witches, you're going to learn a lot more about Blessed Emily Gamelin, the French-Canadian nun that was the foundress of the Sisters of Providence. We've talked a lot about Mojo, but without Emily Gamelin, Mojo's life likely would have gone down a dramatically different path. But what's really interesting is that these two nuns had some serious synchronicities between each other and with us. I'm Sarah. I do what I want. And I'm Andrea. And I like that. And we are Two Two Witches. shot of Rick Mojo. You are welcome and thanks for joining us. Today we're going to talk about my favorite nun, Emily Gamelin, foundress and first superior of Montreal, Canada's Sisters of Providence. Woot woot! Because without Emily, there may not be a Mojo. So I really love Emily too. Yes. The first thing that immediately struck me about Emily's life, even before we began to notice some similarities to yours as this all unfolded around us, to our utter and complete confusion, <laughs> was that her life was very challenging and it was filled with many losses. Yeah, one of the things that was really important to Emily and her faith, and was important to all of the Sisters of Providence, really, was Our Lady of the Seven Sorrows, otherwise known as Our Lady of Seven Dollars. Emily was first introduced to the prayer of Our Lady of Seven Dollars by her spiritual director when she was still a lady woman, Père Saint-Pierre. The Our Lady of Seven Dollars Feast Day is a Catholic celebration held yearly on September 15th. And, surprise, surprise, synchronicity, September 15th is my sister's birthday. (laughs) And that's just one of the many coincidences that line up between the dates in this story. Oh my gosh, there are so many. Yeah, I started making a list after a while because it was getting freaky. (laughs) I bet. Our Lady of Seven Dollars first became a standard Catholic devotion in the 14th century. It is a typical prayer to ask for courage to bear the greatest sorrows in life as Mary the Mother of Jesus did. We'll talk about how all of the sisters saw Our Lady of Seven Sorrows as a sign of divine providence. But first, we need to talk about before Emily joined the sisterhood. Emily Tavernier was born on February 19th, 1800. And I was born on February 19th, but some years later. (laughs) I'll never tell if you won't. (laughs) Emily was the youngest of 15 children and by the time she was born her poor mother was just worn out 15 kids god did you know my dad is the oldest of 15 kids i did not actually <laughs> that would wear anyone out exhausting and even sadder is that nine of the 15 tavernier children died oh it's just terrible from literally the moment of emily's birth the catholic annals discussed divine providence as manifesting continually in her life anna sadler that distant relation of mine they've talked about before yes wrote this about her biography about Emily. It seemed as if heaven wished in some sort to forecast the destiny of that child. Her very place of birth, the thief of providence, foreshadowed that other providence, which name God was later to bestow upon the work of the venerated mother. So from day one, providence is a whole thing simply because of Emily. She was literally born on the land of providence. Whoa. She also had a heart of service from a very early age. The same book describing a specific tale as to her sweet character as a child is recounted about how her mother was clean the house and expressed feeling tired when a four-year-old Emily offered, go and rest. I will take your place, solemnly taking up her mother's duster. Oh, at four? What a sweet child. My God. Anyway, another thing that's in common that you guys have is Emily's husband, Jean-Baptiste Gamelin, was an orchardist and your dad was an orchardist. Yeah, I, I'm a little amazed by that. 
<laughs> so can you explain what exactly that job entails? Because I don't really know. Sure. The definition, actually, of the word orchardist is pretty cut and dry. An orchardist is someone who owns and or supervises an orchard. And in the case of my dad, he and my mom owned 14 acres of peaches and pie cherries in the Willamette Valley of Oregon. He did it all from the initial tree planting, removal of old or diseased trees, replanting, harvesting, cultivating, pruning, dealing with pests, getting fruit to the cannery, you name it. There are years involved with caring for your trees before seeing any fruit and it's hard work and not for an impatient person. Wow, that's really cool. That's a lot of work though. I would definitely lose it having to be that patient waiting for results for sure. <laughs> and clearly you got your green flum from your dad because yeah. like I got my tool skills from my dad. You got those from your dad. Yeah. You're now my official fresh witch herb supplier and no, Yay. I am not talking about weed, okay? <laughs> that's legal here. I just have to go to the dispensary. Yes, I'm talking about weeds and nuns in the same sentence. I do what I fucking want. There's no way that Mojo could be anti-weed if she's hanging around me, right? Absolutely. And you know, I could probably grow that too. <laughs> and nuns, they totally made a lot of medicine. So hey, you never know, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, personally, I was thinking about it. I would do just about anything to smoke a joint with Mojo. No joke. We'd probably solve the problems of the entire fucking universe, okay? Uh, Sarah? Yeah? Please don't cause technical problems again for us with Mojo. <laughs> We love you, Mojo. You know how she is. Sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. Sorry, Mojo. Sorry, Emily. I'll try to behave. It's really hard. Okay, so Jean-Baptiste Gamelin, he was a hard worker. Okay, he was an orchardist. He also was known for being very compassionate. He and Emily bonded over the shared concern for the poor. And when she and Jean-Baptiste married, it was pretty much a shock to everyone, as she previously said she'd never marry. As we touched on, Emily had a lot of losses throughout her life, beginning with her mom's death when she was only four years old. Her mother was also similarly concerned for the poor, and it's noted that Emily, at age three, cried to give up her own food for the unfortunate souls that her mother took pity on and helped regularly. Mm. Then, of course, her mom died. Ugh, I really want to make an Ursula poor unfortunate souls joke here because Ursula's the best, but this isn't funny at all. It's just terrible. It's totally awful and sadly just the beginning for poor Emily. Her father died by the time she was 14 and then she was raised by many family members throughout the rest of her adolescence. She spent a lot of time with her aunt Marie Anne Tavernier and husband Joseph Peralt's home over the years. Emily's old cousin Agatha Nowlin enrolled Emily at a boarding school in 1814 that was run by the Sisters of Congregation of Notre Dame. This is where for the first time Emily learned the history of the Sisters of Notre Dame and I believe the seed was planted for her future. Emily's brother Francois's wife then also died so she moved in with him to help with the kids for a while. While she ran her brother's Francois's household at age 18 with her brother's permission, she was able to care for, cook for, and feed the poor who came to her door to ask for help. This was her first excursion into social work, DIY at its finest. After a year, her brother remarried, allowing Emily to return to her cousin Agatha's household, where she then enjoyed Montreal's social activities as a young woman. Emily was excited to enter modern life. Fancy new dresses, cloaks, and hats were ordered as she arrived in time for the Christmas festivities that first year in Montreal, for what they called the Magnificent Church Services. Mm, they do have some lovely churches there. When they have some big parallels with the church that Mojo built here in Vancouver too. Those churches are a whole nother episode because there is a lot going on with that church. So in 1822, Emily visited the Grey Nuns of Montreal Convent 
to watch her friend Eulalie Lagrave take the habit. She was so taken with the joy radiating from her friend that she wrote to her cousin Agatha, I hope my inclination will strengthen and I shall end by surprising you once and for all. I hope it will continue and I want to say that I renounce your gentleman and Julie's forever and perhaps the world as well. I think I shall become a nun in the fall. What's really interesting and it just dawned on me, one of my best friends, Jacqueline, she's probably going to be listening to this episode because I'll tell her about it. Her grandmother's name was Eulalie and Eulalie was a whole thing for us and it's a very unique name and it just pinged on me that someone else that's very important in my life has a parallel name here. Anyway, although this is how it works. Like we start talking about it and things just ping you live as, as you're mm-hmm. connecting it. It just goes on yep. and on. So although Emily dreamed about taking religious vows, there were practical things that she needed to worry about instead. Her aunt's home needed to be cared for and the garden needed to be tended to. Becoming a nun seemed like a faraway dream, really. Back in Montreal with her attractive looks and charming style, Emily seemed to be the belle of the ball, garnering rumors of engagement to a Monsieur X, as Emily herself referred to him. She assured her aunt in letters at that time that she was still heart-free, but in 1823, at 23 years old, Emily Tavernier surprised everyone by announcing her engagement to Jean-Baptiste Gamelin. And Jean-Baptiste was not Mr. X, by the way. He was a total unexpected wild card. Additionally, Jean-Baptiste had left a previous almost bride at the altar before meeting Emily, lending their sudden romance an extra air of mystery. There was some gossip about this. Ooh, yeah. One of the things I noticed right away that Emily and I have in common when I read about her marriage to Jean-Baptiste was that he was significantly older than she was. And, sorry, Glenn. I'm ratting you out. (laughs) My amazing young at heart husband is much older than me. Yeah. Age is just a number and Glenn's totally a silver fox. Who cares? We love Glenn. He's so fun. (laughs) One of the things that bugs me about Jean-Baptiste Gamelin though is that I cannot find a single photograph of this man or even a description of what he might have looked like. Yeah, that's odd. We don't know what he looked like. We do know that Jean-Baptiste was almost 50 years old who possessed only a modest fortune that came from a large apple orchard where he grew his palms fameuse. Yeah, fine fruit. Yeah. So as a young wife, Emily was very happy and Jean-Baptiste was very devoted to her. Emily and Jean-Baptiste shared a view of charity and devotion towards the poor, and Jean-Baptiste allowed Emily to use all of their resources to aid the more unfortunate in their society. All reports are that he was well-liked and kind. He and Emily ended up having three children together and were reportedly very happy. And then the children began to die. I hate it so much. Their first child, a son named Jean-Baptiste Pierre, was born the year after their marriage and lived a little more than three months. A second son, Jean-Baptiste Antoni, was born the following year and also lived only a few months. Huh. A third son, Toussaint Francois Artier, born October 19th, 1826, finally survived his infancy and was a strong, healthy boy. Oh, I don't get too excited. Unfortunately, on October 1st, 1827, a little less than a year after his only living child had been born, Jean-Baptiste Gamelin contracted an unknown illness and died, leaving her a widow at 27. Oh, and eventually the third baby died too. Like, how much can one poor woman take? My God. That is a lot. That's how she ended up talking with the Catholic pair about how awful she feels. He tells her about Mother Mary, Our Lady of the Seven Sorrows, advising her to turn her sorrow over to Mary and keep working towards helping the poor to help her ease her grief. And so she did. In 1850, she wrote in her journal about her divine experience then that she experienced in 1828. Father St. Pierre made me a present of Our Lady of the Seven Dolores, and every day I went to pray before that image, asking for courage to bear, after her example, the cross 
losses and sacrifices that God sent me in this world. The greatest at the time was the loss of a beloved husband and a dear child for whom I weep every day. My own heart had been pierced by a sword of sorrow, and I could find no greater consolation than to meditate before that picture on the dolors of my mother. We also need to talk about the blessed title that Emily has now earned as she is on the way to canonization or becoming a saint. One of the ways holiness is proven is by verified miracles, and the first one of these attributed to Emily occurred shortly after her husband's death. His death provided Emily with a comfortable monetary estate, left to her control with the stipulation that she would continue to care for a mentally disabled man named Dodias that once saved Jean-Baptiste's life. Emily faithfully agreed to her husband's wishes until Dodias's death, upon which a significant event seen many years later as proof of Emily's pending sainthood occurred. In a show of her kind heart, Emily had allowed Dodias Dodias's mother to live in her home, caring for her alongside her son. Immediately before dying, Dodias was miraculously somehow granted the ability to speak to thank Emily for her care, as well as point out his own mother, saying, Madame, I thank you for all your kindness to me. I am dying. I am going to heaven. I will pray for you. Then, as if to acknowledge his mother, who was beside him, he pointed to her with his wasted hand and added, That is my mother. He died a few minutes later. I get chills every time that I hear or read that story. Like, no joke. Every time I read it, it has to be real. It has to be an authentic account. Because she never talked about this publicly, and it was only revealed after she died. I run the gamut of the medical community, the spiritual community, and the fact that this man, his entire life, had basically been mute. It has to be spiritual. It has to be, you know, a gift from God. And think about how many people she cared for too, right? I mean, thousands, literally. Yeah. Yeah. So it sort of leads me to think that this must be real because there's two there's two specific stories. She also healed a, a boy much later that prayed for her for help with his incurable cancer and he received help. Hmm. But this was the first one and it happened immediately, you know, after her husband's death when she was the most emotionally vulnerable. Yeah. So my thought was maybe that it had to have been some sort of a spiritual experience, you know, a gift for her to maybe keep her going, that her work was valuable. I mean, we know the circumstances of her life were very difficult right then, but I would like to know more about this particular incident you know what i mean it must have been a really big deal yeah it's almost as if she was given the slimmest sliver of proof that she was onto something because she wasn't even a nun yet yeah she was not a nun yet that's true she was just helping people in her house so to have a religious experience like that probably would have pushed her i would imagine that much further towards no i just got tingles down my leg so the sadler biography that's the link to my ancestors tells the tale madame ganelin never told anyone of this extraordinary occurrence except her confessor father bourgere de saint pierre and later monsieur prince the latter only related it after the death of his penitent so nobody talked about this until after she died she wasn't even a nun yet hmm. it's really interesting that it was never brought up never made public. So caring for Dodias brought Emily a peace she hadn't known since she lost her family, and it became clear to her that the purpose of her life was to help as many people as possible. After the death of her remaining child, a deeply grieving Emily again went to the home of her cousin, Mrs. Nolan, for respite. While she was there, she learned to speak English, and she was also exposed to the many beggars in the city that needed help. Madame Nolan was known for being a social service leader and assisting the poor, and Emily often accompanied her cousin to the hovels of the city, which was a life-changing experience for her. Despite the ridicule from much of the upper-class society, who saw the poor as nothing but a nuisance to be avoided, Emily opened her heart and eventually the doors of her home to the sick and feeble. She also refused two offers of remarriage, which would have provided for her future security with both income and 
and status. Emily also stopped wearing makeup, but continued to wear her wedding ring from her beloved Jean-Baptiste until a local priest nastily asked her why she continued to wear, quote, that jewel on your hand. So she removed it, insisting that you can raffle it for the benefit of the poor. Like, how mean, though? I want to smack that priest. Yeah. What the hell? Yeah. That's my emojo. Sorry. But that's a dick move. Oh, it's totally a dick move. It, it made me think of the superiority of men in the religious kingdom. Like, she's lost everything, and they're, they're ragging her for her yeah. wedding ring? Give me a break. Yeah, I didn't like that. So the only expensive item she kept from her life with Jean-Baptiste was a gold locket that had the hair of her children in it, and she was buried with that. So... What about Emily and Mojo's relationship? We told you they have a lot of synchronicities between them, and we know that Emily still tended to guide Mojo from beyond the grave after she died. Both mother superiors came from French Canada, with their religious order stemming out of community needs brought on by the Napoleonic Wars in France. The Catholics were not allowed to openly practice their religion in England, the fight spilling over to the New World in both Canada and the newly independent United States. Both factions employed chapters of the Sons of Liberty in their fight, and many French-Canadian political prisoners were taken and executed. The year 1837 marks the first time that the lives of Emily Gamelin and the young Esther Perazou, later known as Mother Joseph of the Sacred Heart, begin to have interesting parallels. At the time, Esther is herself leading a troop of the patriots called the Younger Sons and Daughters of Liberty to protest this religious discrimination that the Catholics were facing from the British. While this is occurring, young widow Emily Gamelin becomes known as the Angel of Prisoners, locally for her work in helping the political prisoners incarcerated by the British in the Montreal jail for their part in the rebellion. 112 patriots went to trial. 98 were condemned to death, with eventually 12 being executed. Due to Emily's reputation for being above board with her charity activities, she was allowed to bring the prisoner supplies, and she secretly became an intermediary, passing messages between the jailed rebels and their loved ones. Thug life. Thug life. She was quieter about it than Mojo was, but it was there. Right. Another synchronistic sign of what Emily saw as providence came as a result of her work with the prisoners. She managed to bring the daughter of a prisoner named Jacques Longton, who was slated for execution into the jail under the guise of needing an assistant. The father ended up later being exiled to a penal colony in Australia. This grateful child that was smuggled in for Alaska by later became one of the Sisters of Providence as Sister Jean Baptiste. <laughs> Named after Emily's husband. Yes. Wow. So both Emily and Esther were resisting in effective and unusual ways to serve their Catholic communities at the time of the French-Canadian and British conflict, long before either had dedicated themselves to religious life. Deeply concerned with issues like injustice from an early age, they were both known to forge relationships between parties in interesting ways to facilitate local growth in their communities. Both mother superiors also had documented religious experiences as young women that seemed to guide their life paths. Both of them broke the rules in face of injustice, too. Upon deciding firmly to dedicate her life to service, Emily approached the Notre Dame Church in Montreal, the only Catholic parish at the time in the area, wanting to establish a shelter for women. She was given the ground floor of a small parochial school operated by the Sisters of Notre Dame, and soon 16 older ladies moved in. I don't think we mentioned this either, but Emily was actually married to Jean-Baptiste in that same church, so that's kind of ironic that that's the place where she went to go get help. So most of those older ladies that moved in with her had dementia, and the work by all accounts was challenging and thankless. So yet again, people with dementia, you know, these nuns would have been taking care of my father. But Gamelin thrived on it. She was a natural peacemaker, and soon she rented two adjoining homes for her purpose, and and herself moved into one, moving her seniors into the other. At one point, she personally took home six children that were orphaned simultaneously by the loss of their parents until they were at an age to be placed out. She cared for the poor out of her home for four years, 
until when, full of confidence in divine providence, she prayed herself and caused her old people to pray that some charitable person might be inspired to give her a house, which she might be better proportioned to the needs of her work. And she believed it fervently, saying, quote, her faith in providence became greater as human means seemed to fail. She was fully convinced God would send her help at the right moment. Quickly running out of room, she approached a prominent Montrealite who had been sympathetic to the poor in the past. He immediately recognized the value in her work and donated to her a piece of property with a large two-story home, now known affectionately in the Providence records as the Yellow House, as it was yellow at the time of acquisition. The Yellow House operated in continuation until October of 1845 when it was lost to a fire. Dang! Like, what's wrong with me? I wonder if I could pray for a house in this land. Like, Come on, Mojo, you're holding out on me. <laughs> it has to be a yellow house, Sarah. Well, Did you know spiritually the color yellow represents personal power and fulfillment? Whoa. Also, abundance, courage, and self-confidence. So throughout the ages, the color yellow has stood for wisdom and intellect. No wonder she received a yellow house after believing so fervently. You know, I'm just sitting here laughing because I actually light a yellow pillar candle for Mojo. That's specifically which for protection. Oh, there so you go. everybody that follows me on Twitter knows that damn yellow candle because it's always a yellow candle. Yellow. So yellow. Yellow. Okay. Yellow is important. Hmm. So November 6, 1841, good old Bishop Bourget. Yay, him again. <laughs> established an association known as the Asylum of the Ladies of Providence for the Aged and Infirm Women. It is Bourget that comes up with the idea of bagging tours for funds, and he says to Gamelin, I have not a cent to put in your purse, but that the poor may not blush for their estate, I too will become a beggar, that I may have the happiness of sharing in the work so dear to my heart. Of course, he later taught Mojo about begging tours in 1856 when she came to Oregon too. On February 2nd, 1842, Emily took her own personal private vow to serve the poor. At this point, Madame Gamelin and the other ladies that worked in her charity homes for the needy were not members of any religious order, simply women allied for the relief of aged women. Their group was initially promised a group of sisters from the Sisters of Charity of St. Vincent de Paul from France to provide official help and training. Emily was quickly running out of her personal funds to run her programs and desperately needed reinforcements. They bought another plot of property next to the Yellow House and were able to raise funds to fix it up in preparation for the planned arrival from the Sisters of Paris. Suddenly, in 1843, Bishop Bourget received word from France that the previously promised nuns were not coming, sending all parties into a panic. Emily also prayed for help, and just like 14 years ago, she feels moved to join the Order of Sisters. Again, to her humiliation, she is denied. Bishop Bourget instead accepted seven other young novices on March 23, 1843, inside the Yellow House. Man, to be shot down twice like that had to have stung. She must have been crushed, and I just realized it when I was saying this. It was inside her yellow house. Aww. Yeah. That must have really sucked, but she didn't give up. An additional incident attributed to God's providence providing for the sisters is noted in the history of the rosaries that were presented to the original seven women upon joining the order. Bishop Bourget had been somehow gifted exactly seven Our Lady of the Seven Dollars rosaries upon his last mass during a visit to the cathedral of Chartres, France, by an unknown person. The fact seven, seven mysterious wrote, like, what is up? The fact that Mother Gamelin herself had a deep reverence and connection to Our Lady of Seven Dolores does make the fact somehow a sign of 
predestination or synchronicity when you take a look at what happened. Even before officially joining religious life, the concept of divine providence was important to Emily and manifested itself repeatedly in response to her devout prayers. A story dating from around 1843 notes a time when Emily's refuge was in serious jeopardy due to a lack of funds. Another day, the cash on hand amounted to a few cents. The sisters and the poor assisted at Mass in honor of St. Joseph, begging them to come to their aid. Around nine o'clock, a stranger rang the doorbell and said, I am a traveler. I was in danger of death, and I promised that if I were to be spared, I would give an offering for the poor. I am happy to keep my promise by giving alms for your house. St. Joseph, huh? I see what she did there. They also talk about this phenomenon further, saying God's providential action is in Indeed, clearly displayed in the foundation of Mother Camelin and in the beginnings of her community. Another tale recounts when she had no money for the market but needed food, so she prayed, My God, I am going to do the marketing for your poor, and my purse is empty. Shortly on her walk towards the market, a stranger came up to her and said, I learned that you have nothing in your purse. There's something to help you, and gave her 25 shillings. Okay, so maybe if we hang out with these nuns long enough, they'll just start <laughs> having strangers give us houses and money, because that would be pretty cool. Even when she finally does get to join the sisterhood, it seems somehow faded. Four months after the seven young women were admitted as the first sisters, one of them unfortunately became ill and had to return to private life, which left an opening. So for a third time, Gamelin tearfully asked, asked Bishop Rosé to let her join. Still in doubt, still in doubt. What is up with this guy? He advises her, visit some other charitable institutions in the United States to learn what it's really going to take to run your own facility. She then went to the Daughters of St. Vincent de Paul in New York and Boston, and eventually to the Mother House of the American Sisters of Charity at Emmitsburg, Maryland. She again thrived and loved the work. Her desire to join the sisters was stronger than ever. She recounted in her journal about this time in her life. It was all made for me. Oh my God, I thank thee for my vocation to the religious life. Thou didst decide for me by thy ministers. Three of them examined my vocation. Thus I am convinced it was thy will. I have never repented of following their advice. She is advised in a long letter given to her upon her departure for the United States with two female friends and Mr. P.J. LaCroix as an escort by Bishop Bourget. Let the worthy gentleman who is to be your provider upon this journey recall St. Joseph, who advised the holy angels, led the holy family, whether it was needful for them to go in conformity with the decrees of divine providence. Ask as a favor for a copy of their rules, constitutions, and customs. Try, above all, to obtain the rule of St. Vincent de Paul to his sisters of charity as a loan, if they will neither sell nor give it to you. Gamelin returned to Montreal in October 1843, bringing with her that handwritten copy of the rules of St. Vincent de Paul. This, of course, is the same copy that Mother Joseph takes to Oregon in 1856. Having finally proven herself to Bourget, two days after her return, she was finally allowed to become a Sister of Charity of Divine Providence at the age of 43. The novitiates were eventually confirmed on March 29, 1844, with Emily appointed Mother Superior to lead their new community. Wow, so shot down three times. She really had to have a strong faith to make it through. Besides her faith, what else was Emily like? Well, it was said that simplicity masked her greatness of soul, her foresight, and her courage. There is light and shadow in Mother Gamlin's life, bright lights and deep shadows. There is joy and sorrow. There is work and hardship, patience and toil, prayer, tireless prayer, and love, a great love that is wrapped up in a supreme confidence and an abiding trust in divine providence. So even though Emily finally got what she wanted, it wasn't without some sacrifice. Mother Gamelin was passionately attached to her own people. It was painful for her in the extreme to give up the full freedom of her relations with them, which constituted the joy and recreation of an active and laborious life. So what do you think about being a nun, Sarah? 
Uh, I don't know. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I feel like at this time in my life, I would have the patience to be a nun. Yeah, not me. But I'm so intertwined in other people's lives that I wouldn't be able to tear myself away from that. Exactly. Maybe as a younger person, I would have had the energy to look forward and plan and be passionate. But personally, as a younger person, I would have never become a nun. Yeah. So it's a catch-22 for me. But if you think about it, though, what were your options as a young woman back then? I mean, you could marry someone and pop out a bunch of kids or... Which I did. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I did. mean, we both got married young. Yeah. Yeah. The first time. Yeah. Or I didn't have any biological children, but... Still. You know, I was been raising everybody else's children my entire life. Yes. But, you know, thinking about both of these women, we have one who lost her family. I mean, she lost her family. They're dead. Yeah. She's, she's completely destroyed emotionally. What else does she do? Then we have the other woman who doesn't quite fit in the gender norm. I mean, can you imagine her settling down and being someone's wife and staying home and cooking and cleaning and being an obedient housewife, Mojo? No. No. Mm-hmm. Like, no. Wouldn't they're, they're... Have worked out well for that man? No. Or her. You know, <laughs> women weren't allowed her, to, yes. to build buildings back then unless... Yeah. You were a nun. Yeah. So, you know, it's real easy for me to say, oh, hell no, like, no way. But if, you know, it's 1830 or 1820 and I'm me and they're like, well, here's your two choices. You know, you can marry this old dude down the road and take care of his ass or you can go do some stuff that interests you and mm-hmm. it won't be easy, but at least you'll have some freedom. And yeah. It really, you don't answer to anybody but yourself and the higher calling. Right. So it's like you only have to be obedient to God. God, really. Yes. Which is the one thing that, you know, they talked about Mother Joseph always said is that was the one thing that she didn't care about the poverty or the chastity. She just was slightly concerned about the obedience part. Yes. <laughs> I relate. I relate. I think, you know, one of my new favorite phrases is passionately attached to her own people. Mm. Uh, it really, it stopped me when I was going through the research. I had a little bit of an aha moment, actually, because I too am very passionately attached to my people. When I find my people, same, and I'm not just talking about people I'm related to or, right. you know, children or parents or husband. I'm talking about like my people, the people that I click with. Found family. Mm-hmm. I am very clannish, I guess, and very passionate. We're both pretty ride or die. Absolutely. Absolutely. So in this, you know, time in my life, I'm not sure I would be able to do what she did. Also, singing is noted as being one of Mother Gamelin's spiritual resources. Yeah. Mother Gamelin was very fond of music and singing, and for a long time, she herself directed the choir of the house. At that time, they had no musical instruments. The sisters sang in the first gallery of the chapel, often on their knees, or like St. Teresa and her companions, sitting on their heels. Hmm. And upon Emily's death, Bishop Bourget eulogized her love of music as a method of spiritual therapy, calling it, It was good to see her in the community rooms, surrounded by her dear elderly ladies, whose cheerful serenity gave proof that in the presence of of Mother and Gamelin that they forgot their suffering. And this, this is basically what happened when I visited the care home I placed my dad in, right? Alabama Drive, they were playing the piano and singing, and I just pretty much connected that now. So, of course, singing is this theme that continues to be important to the Orders of Sisters of Providence. It's noted as a specific need by Mother Joseph when she's founding the later mission at Fort Vancouver. Emily's saintly character is further described. These spontaneous outpourings of her heart in moments of closest self-scrutiny and deepest recollection prove to what a degree she was tormented by that supernatural thirst for Christian perfection, which is characteristic of the holiest of souls. Supernatural... 
Mongolia's the sauce. Mm. <laughs> the dying, as well as the living, benefited greatly from Emily's unending compassion, requesting her specifically by name on their deathbeds to bring them a last comfort. Additionally to caring for those under her roof, she continually operated a soup kitchen to feed any who were in need in Montreal. This is something they took seriously, calling it the work of the soup. I really love that. And mm-hmm. it dawned, as we're recording, it keeps dawning on me that these two women seem to take the title of mother very, very seriously. And I yes. love that. Yes. And I guess that soup kitchen line was literally around the block every single day at the mother house. And that's something that they came up with that had a direct impact to ease the immediate suffering in their community. No one else but the nuns on the ground were really bothering to do that kind of stuff. Yes. In 1846, Mother Gamelin branched out of the Yellow House area establishing a mission in the village of Long Point on the banks of the St. Lawrence River, opening an elementary school and hospice for the mentally ill. This area became the center of their operations, and the Providence Isle Mother House was founded. A few months after Emily was appointed mother, Esther Perisot arrived with her father Joseph on September 23, 1843. Interestingly enough, Emily also died on a September 23rd, a few years later in 1851. The September 23rd is another one of those dates repeats we keep seeing again and again. And she didn't have one, but two premonitions of her own death. In September 1851, Gamlin, while on a walk outside with then Sister Joseph, yes, Mojo, and another nun, remarked that she was tired and felt that it was cholera weather. A few days later, she seems to receive a premonition of her own upcoming illness and death, remarking as she leaves a group of her sisters on September 10th. Farewell, my dear daughters. I now see you for the last time. I have prayed to St. Elizabeth that you may always love the poor and that peace and union may ever be preserved among you. You know, and she's only in her 50s. Yeah. But she knew. She's she's, ta- she's tapped into something, clearly. Yeah. So Emily presided over her first and last council meeting on September 22nd, 1851. Her close, confident, and roommate sister Joseph at her side, of course. This was a big meeting for the ladies. This was the one where the order's leadership from the bishop was turned over to them directly. And the bishop trusted them finally to do the work on their own without any oversight. Man, I bet that felt good to be able to be independent women. Finally, right? So they got to go where they wanted and do what they wanted. And, of course, September 22nd, my birthday. The last happy day that the two women would have had together, right? That kind of caught my attention. Yeah, that's really premonitionally sad, actually. Yeah, yeah. By 3 a.m. the next morning, on the 23rd, she was urgently waking Sister Joseph, exclaiming, My dear sister, I am going to die. I have cholera. I wish to be taken up to the infirmary so as to die with the other sisters who have gone before me in the common room. Bishop Bourget and Sister Joseph were at her side when she died at 4 p.m. that afternoon. Records report that Sister Joseph never got over her death. Years later on her way to Oregon, she said, To Sister Joseph, that all seemed only yesterday. So fresh was her memory, and so deep remained the sense of loss of her beloved one. And of course, she continued to feel Gamelin's guidance continually and had a relationship with her that transcended death. I've thought more than once that my talking to Mojo might be a parallel of what she was doing with Emily. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Once again, we always promised we'd always leave the show on a high note. So let's talk about what's happening with some of the listeners of this fine podcast. (laughs) There's a lot of stuff that's starting to happen. One of the first things that we told you in this very first episode of the podcast was that this brick shit and all the synchronicities around it seems to be contagious. And we weren't kidding about that. Nope. Look, I may talk a lot of shit, but not about that, okay? Something's definitely going on. Yes. 
I do believe something very cool is going on. <laughs> so we're going to start talking to some of our friends and followers that have become interested in Hidden Brink since I started listening to Two Witches. Because this hyper sigil has once again been activated. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Sorry. Truly, we aren't sure what exactly may be going on here. Are we creating an egregore, some sort of phenomena by pumping energy into this brick hyper sigil? We think about bricks a lot. That's something Sarah and I have been focusing on a lot recently. It really made us think. Like you were joking the other day that I was making myself an own Dybbuk box, right? Just like, thinking <laughs> about this stuff. But the thing that really could give me a bit of an existential crisis, though, is when you do start to really wonder, am I just noticing something or am I actually making it occur? Because I personally have experimented and successfully made a synchronicity or two happen. Awesome. Tell us how. Well, I know we keep promising guests to you guys, but as I mentioned before, we had some technical goblins that gave us a little bit longer of a learning curve, but guests are coming. We promise really soon. Yes, we've got it just about ironed out now. And one of those guests we've mentioned is Matt, otherwise known as AP Strange. Yes, and Matt and I successfully created a minor synchronicity on purpose just to see if it could be done. And we'll tell you all about it. And <laughs> it had unintended consequences, of course, like they always do whenever I do anything like that. But Matt was finally bricked this week, which is hilarious in itself as Clearly, it was just ADHD trying to defeat me because Matt was in this brick shit, like, from day one, basically. I think literally the day I bought that first brick, I messaged him and was like, yo, check out the brick I found. I guess he assumed he had a brick since 2019. Is that something like the Mandela effect? Something you swore happened? Like the Berenstein Bears <laughs> spelling thing? So, you know, I really love this because I love the Berenstein Bears reference. Yeah. I, I've read about it. I've wondered about it myself because I read those to my kids and kind of crazy. Also, going back a little bit. So explain what being bricked means. We talked about that in episode one, too. And that's when someone receives a brick in the mail. Okay. So, but yeah, I truly wonder because I swore, like, I swear I sent him, like, he, he had been one of the first five people that got bricks, but he never got a brick. So I, I was I just totally blown. My mind was blown by that whole thing. And I wonder what's going on because all I had to do was get a brick in the mail to him. I was like, oh, I can't believe you didn't get it, but okay, it's coming. The minute it's in the mail, the day I mailed it, he actually found a brick in a really synchronistic way. And we'll talk about that too. Yes, these are all teasers. Then our friend Stephanie Quick, who also is going to come talk to us, had a nice little synchro ping around the brick you sent her too, right? She did. And as of this recording, there's actually six weird brick incidences just this week, which would be an event around the bricks that's somehow synchronistic for people. That has to do with connecting bricks, seeing a brick, receiving a brick, something weird happened around the bricks. Six. That's pretty unbelievable. It was wild as you just kept sending me screenshots and tagging me in these conversations as they were unfolding. And we're editing episode six right now. <laughs> Will we get a new person pulled in every episode? It's like, okay, am I, am I, for every episode we get out, is it going to rope somebody in? I don't know. I really wonder if the wild climate that truly America and the world is in right now too is also pumping energy into this, whatever this is, the mainframe or whatever you want to call it. Because where I always end up back is all of these patterns maybe mean that nothing is actually real. So birds, Birds aren't real. That's right. Spread the gospel. Birds aren't real. No, seriously. <laughs> seriously, we are so sick of conspiracy theories, paranoia, and doxing. We could both just puke. Just knock it off, guys. Yeah. COVID is real. Black lives matter. Trans lives matter. 
Call your doctor first if you think you're physically being attacked. There are no lizard people. For sure. Psychically attacks, physical attacks, whatever. Um, David Ick is not okay, you guys. Keep the QAnon out of the weird shit, okay? Get out of here with your noise with that. Anyway, um, huge sickness of these can truly make you feel slightly crazy, and you have to be careful with that. It's been going around a little bit, but we did give you some fair warning. The bricks are finding their people, just like we knew they would. And one of our great followers, Marissa, we will link her in the show notes so you can follow her on Twitter, got in touch with us and graciously told us we could share her story. So thanks, Marissa. Here's what she had to say. 100% inspired by Two Witches Pod. Way too many synchronicities in episodes, so I decided I would look up brick-related stuff about my liminal-as-fuck hometown. Found lots of crazy shit last night, but today, today, I'm reading about Sacred Heart College. Oh, the Sacred Heart. Here we go. Mojo up the Sacred Heart. So what's next? (laughs) Marissa continues, I had no idea there was a Catholic college in the town at one time. Opened in 1872. 1912 was transferred to the Brothers of the Order. They made it a Catholic military academy, 1955, until 1968, when it relocated to Le Mans Academy. So anyhow, back to my point. Just want to thank Two Witches Pod for the inspiration, because now I'm down the wildest and most awesome fucking rabbit hole ever. I grew up in such a wonderfully awful, strange place, and I'm fucking ready to explore it now. Yes, this is amazing. (laughs) Explore the strange, get out there. This is a whole thing. This is what our whole thing is about. Get out there and be weird. This goes right into why we align ourselves with Liminal Earth. We like to go out and do stuff and put it on the map. Go to Liminal.Earth. Yes, just like we did this weekend. Yes, and man, that was so awesome. We will tell you all about our first trip out there to the mill in the next episode of Two Witches. We also have a report to share from a past employee of this Willamette Heritage Center about how crazy haunted this place truly is. We can't wait to tell you about it. So thank you to Mother Joseph, to Emily Gamelin, and to you, listener, for joining us. So until then, take care of yourself. And don't be an asshole. Two Witches Podcast, proving once again that witches are more than hoes and tricks. 